Principal Matters Podcast, episode 346. Hi, friends. This is Will Parker, host of Principal Matters, the School Leaders Podcast, where each week we bring you inspiring, innovative, and imaginative ideas for your own school leadership. This week, we're talking part two of equity for multilingual learners with my special guest, Carlene Thomas. Carlene Thomas is the CEO and founder of an education consulting company that advocates for equity for multilingual learners and specializes in support for bilingual education in English as a second language programs. Now, I introduced Carlene last week thoroughly. And so if you want to go back to episode <laughs> 345, you can find out that Carlene has worked both in schools, teaching English as a second language. She has worked in Beijing, China. She has been a part of the Texas Education Agency, and she does work all over the state of Texas. And now she's reaching out to you through this podcast to Principal Matters listeners with some of the specialties and understandings of programs for helping multilingual learners. Carlene Thomas, welcome back to Principal Matters podcast. Can I start with a quick story before we jump back into some content? When I was a high school principal, we had a very small second language population. I worked in a school north of Tulsa, Oklahoma. We had a um, a, a large percentage of our students that were Native American. So we taught uh, a Native American language as a, as a language option in our school. We had a proud heritage there. But when it came to second language speakers, our community had a very small group. And one year we had two students that moved in that were both second language speakers. And we did not have one person in our building who was trained or had specialty in that area. And I looked at those two young men and I thought about what would it feel like to be in their shoes, standing here, trying to talk to Mr. Parker, not understanding what I'm trying to say to them, looking at a high school schedule that they were enrolling in without any idea of like how they're going to understand their teachers And I got on the phone and I started calling around to the local universities in the Tulsa area and just asking, who do you know that specializes in second language learners that you could point me to for help, consultation? Because I know other districts in our area had some specialists, but I was trying to find someone that we could use that wasn't already employed by a school. And I was so um, thankful. I came across an assistant professor who was doing work in language acquisition. And she came to the school, met the boys, and we were able to hire her as a consultant on a part-time basis to come in and help get them get established. Um, She could speak um, a a second language. And so she was able to help them um, begin to understand how to connect with their curriculum. Um, And I'll never forget the night. I'm going to just name one of the boys in particular, whose name was Miguel. I'll never forget the night that Miguel uh, was standing in his graduation gown um, after his fourth year at my high school and proudly receiving a high school diploma just because he had met the same requirements that every other kid in that school had met. And that night um, I took my family after graduation to dinner at a local restaurant nearby. And it was raining. I'll never forget this moment because it was raining and I had to cover I let everybody out at the door and I, you know, when I walked in, I was just covered and drenching with water and in walks Miguel with his family and he's drenched too. And we're standing there looking at each other soaked and his father walked up to me and in his um, English as a second language said to me in just the most loving way, um, thank you to the school for believing in my son 
in giving him an opportunity to do what no one else in our family has done. And Carly, I want to start there because um, I was very, very blessed and grateful to have found some help in assisting mm -hmm. a small group of students. But I'm speaking to listeners right now who have large populations of second language speakers. Some of those schools have specialists and some of them don't. But this is why I invited you to this podcast. And last week for um, episode 345, we jumped into some of the introductory questions that I've asked you. But um, but I have a lot more that listeners <laughs> sent to me that I want to jump into. But before I do, let me let you respond to that intro and some thoughts you want to add, because you've had those same experiences, haven't you? Oh, absolutely. You know, and, and that's a lot of the why, right, that keeps us going is sometimes we don't always get to see the success at the end, right? And sometimes we're a small part along the way. And, um, you know, I think it's it's incredible, though, um, the de decision that you made to not just let it slide, right? To reach out for support is so pivotal. Unfortunately, I've seen the reverse of that where folks are more concerned about their accountability measures than the kids standing right in front of them. And uh, we have to be family and kid focused um, mm -hmm. and, and do everything we can so that they don't drop out, so they don't become a statistic, so that we can provide the support that they need to be successful because it's possible. It is. And I'll bring that, that story full circle because one of the reasons I was so committed to those young men was because in a previous year, we had had a student who had come in as a second language speaker without any help. And we had just tried to do with what we had in place, the supports that he needed. And he did fall through the cracks. Mm -hmm. And I tried to pursue him even after, even after he had um, finished quote unquote school without a diploma. I tried to find him in the community. I tried to bring him back for some additional help but I didn't have the resources or the expertise available to help him go get to that next level. And so when, when those two guys showed up that year, I was like, this can't happen again. Um, right. And so, so I want to stay here with you. And I would just want to, first of all, thank you for giving so much time to principal matters listeners. Cause when I reached out to you through a mutual friend to ask, could I bring your expertise to principal matters listeners? You were so, so generous to say yes and I had also reached out to a couple of my listeners, an assistant principal in El Paso and another Ohio leader who leads a Russian-speaking school, and asked them to send me questions. And last episode, you answered a couple of those questions. But I want to jump into the next question mm -hmm. that one of these leaders gave me, and it's this one. How do we help teachers develop the social consciousness to make connections and better serve our ELL students? Because this isn't just a leadership challenge. This is an all-of-us challenge. It really is. It really is. I'm glad that you mentioned that, you know, because in the question, it really talks about how do we help the teachers to do it. And I think, um, you know, especially for your listeners and those that are uh, leaders in our schools and our districts, it's so important to know that these aspects of building social consciousness, the culturally sustaining practices that we talked about in the last episode, right? Uh, global competence, another important facet, right? All of that needs to come from a systemic perspective, right? With district and campus leaders at the forefront of growing these capacities and embedding that not only as a mindset, but actionable pieces uh, into all facets of their educational system. Um, and so it, it can't just rest on the, the teachers themselves 
to you know make students feel comfortable to incorporate uh, cultural aspects and heritages of students in their classrooms. This needs to be from the frontline staff that welcome you know families into the school, the secretaries, the uh, cafeteria workers, the custodial staff, everyone on the campus needs to understand what it looks like to be uh, culturally sustaining and to build those areas of social consciousness. Um, I would say what's really important for leaders to consider, not only for themselves, but for their staff, is meet people where they are, mm. right? There's really a spectrum when we think about, you know, I've been talking about culturally sustaining practices, which is kind of like the pinnacle of everything, right? Mm. Where we really are um, advanced if you will. But there's a spectrum of that kind of beginning at more of an awareness level where it's, you know, just being culturally responsive to students and families. Um, and then from there, moving into cultural relevant uh, pedagogy. And again, that's adding in a little more academics, it's adding in a little bit more of the social consciousness, right? Um, and then getting really to that more sustaining level where we're really considering how we adjust our school community uh, to ensure everyone is celebrated. But I would say we need to meet people where they are. We may want everyone to be at that le level of, you know, culturally sustaining pedagogy and practices, but they may not yet be there. We may have to just build some awareness and then move to the relevancy, move to the sustainability from there. Um, in our last episode, we all talked about, you know, difference of a, of a deficit mentality, to a difference mentality, and then an asset-based approach, right? Mm -hmm. And so we all may be at different places, but I think as leaders, it's important that we really meet people where they are. And even if we have to start with just basic awareness, start there. Let me ask you this question, Carlene. When you think about culturally sustaining practices and trying to build schools that this is my question is what how would you describe a school that looks like that give me give me that description of if you could because obviously in your work that's the ultimate goal so mm -hmm. give us a sense of if i'm a student walking into that kind of school what would it look like and feel like i would say one that the you know work of students is representative across the campus right the cultural heritages and languages of the students is represented across the campus, that it's not just a facet, like, you know, in the portables, you know what I mean? Like, mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, but really integrated across all communication that's provided, um, the celebrations that are had, um, you know, because those are the food and celebrations. Yes, they're part of surface level culture, um, and it's not really necessarily deep levels of culture, but they're entry points to ensuring that students feel seen and heard and represented in their schools. So I think those areas, and then really, again, we kind of talked about before some empowerment level of families where they're involved in promoting their own cultural heritage, right? Whether it's bringing them in as speakers in the classroom, involving them in campus decision-making, um, and uh, planning and not just coming in to make copies or, you know, be a lunchtime volunteer, but also really doing some more decision making so that their cultures and heritages are more representative in the decisions of our schools. I really like that. And I'm just going to apply that back to 
um, in my own practice and school leadership in, I'm just speaking to my practice for just a moment, yeah. but often when I thought of in, you know, shared leadership decisions for me meant that I've circled myself around with, with teachers who represent the different voices of my staff and the different departments and interest in curriculum areas, but also my student advisors who would represent the voices of students. And I'm thinking right now, as I'm saying this, wow, when within my student advisement, was I also making sure to get the voices of those students who might be on a different position, a different cultural path. They may be, because so often we depend on a quote unquote, our student leaders, you know, the, mm -hmm. those who are high achievers, but how are we taking a step back? And I'm going to give a plug out to a friend of mine who leads a school in Palo, Palo Alto, California, Brent Klein. Every year, Brent interviews students from every grade level to decide who gets to be on his advisory committee. And he makes an intentional effort that those students chosen to be on that team are going to be representative of all of those different areas of student interest and expression and, and cultural um, background. So, um, so kudos to my friend Brent Klein, mm -hmm. who may be listening right now, but also just, um, just a heads up to Principal Matters listeners that culturally sustaining programs mean that those all students in your, in your buildings feel like their voices are included uh, and that they are represented in um, the advisement that even principals are getting from students. Anything else you want to add to that? Yeah, I would just completely piggyback on the asking students themselves. Um, sometimes when it comes to culturally sustaining practices, as educators, we can feel a weight of responsibility that we have to be the ones that bring the cultural examples and connections. And yes, we can be intentional to do those things, but a lot of times those are then based on our own assumptions and sometimes misconceptions of cultural aspects. Instead, ask students themselves to make some of those linguistic cross-cultural connections and represent themselves in their own identities rather than us just assuming and feeling like we have to force it in and rather ask them to represent themselves. Mm -hmm. Okay, this next question is from an assistant principal listeners who, who's also an LPAC coordinator, which you may need to explain for those outside of Texas what that means. Um, but her question was, how can I, as an LPAC coordinator and an AP, make myself more involved? Absolutely. Yes. So a little acronym, of course, LPAC stands for Language Proficiency Assessment Committee. And in Texas, all districts must have enough LPACs to perform the duties assigned in really compliance paperwork is the main focus, um, making sure students are identified, appropriately served, and reclassified. Um, and I would say a couple key things on this as a, an assistant principal and LPAC chair or coordinator. One, listen to the teachers and <laughs> they're on the front lines, whether it's even if sometimes, you know, we always, it's a, it's a requirement to have a teacher representative on the LPAC. Okay. But sometimes that's one teacher that may not be the teacher of the students being discussed because you might be talking about multiple students at once so you know maybe even gathering students's uh documentation of their students progress and input you know gathering that in written form prior to a meeting to ensure we're really getting the perspectives of students teachers um also as a leader, spend time in the classrooms in a non-evaluative 
setting, right? So go into the classrooms without the purpose of just evaluation and watch, listen, be a part of small group instruction or anything that you can really see how your English learners are doing on a hands-on level. Um, and I think just ongoing growth, personal growth and building of capacity through continued professional development of your own, right? Seeking to understand, seeking to learn from the research um, and, and, you know, then being able to understand the data and progress of your students. All right, I'm going to keep going because there's several other questions that I want to try to see if we can fit in from listeners that have emailed me that lead schools with second language learners. So any tips on how to incorporate our ELL students with our non-ELL students? Number one, model. Model it. Teachers, staff, we are the models for what inclusivity should look like. That's our own staff, adult relationships, we have to model that, as well as the approach that we take with all students and families. Um, also elevate um, the English learners themselves as leaders, right? Mm -hmm. How often are we actually asking students, how's my instruction working for you, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, they're our number one customers, let's ask them. Um, also, um, implementing effective program models that really limit isolation. So rather than thinking about more of a pull out setting where they are taken out of their classroom, how can we have a more inclusive setting? Hi friends, I wanna take a quick break here to ask you a question. Did you know that leaders learn better together? When we isolate ourselves from the input and inside of others, then we work within the limitations of our own ideas and experience. And that's why I'm so grateful that you're listening to this podcast right now. It's also why I want to keep you informed of upcoming episodes, as well as leadership academies, mastermind offerings, or executive coaching opportunities I'm making available to leaders like you. Go to williamdparker.com and check out the services link to learn more, or visit my website and select the subscribe button to be on the weekly Principal Matters mailing list. Thank you so much for learning together. Now let's jump back into the rest of today's episode. Okay. And I'm always tempted to add things, but I'm not going to because there, <laughs> because there, there, there are so many other good questions here that were sent in that I want to make sure that you have a chance to respond. And Principal Matters listeners, I will point you to Carlene's contact information as we finish up because you're going to want to connect with her resources. And um, and if you want deeper understanding of these things, it's certainly an important time to reach out to her for some more context and further conversations. But here's the next question, Carlene. What suggestions, and this is from, by the way, um, the principal friend of mine who's leading a school, younger learners, um, mostly Russian-speaking students. Her question is, what suggestions do you have related to testing newcomers in kindergarten readiness assessment? dyslexia, state testing, and third grade reading guarantee requirements. And that's an Ohio specific question too. Yeah. I would say the most baseline here that's so essential is investing students in the purpose of whatever assessment it is. And seeing that helping them to understand for the most part in each of these types of uh, assessments, that it's a goal of progress measure rather than just a performance assessment. Um, but investing them in the purpose is always going to get you better results. 
Um, and of course, then communicating with their families as well as to the purpose so that they can support from the home. Um, and as feasible, um, particularly when it comes to dyslexia testing for 504 services, special education, et cetera, it's really important that when feasible, we assess students in their primary language as well as English uh, to really you know, determine appropriateness. All right, here we go. Next question again, how do you, <laughs> whew, this is a tough one. How do you navigate through the lack of psychologists and counselors and speech therapists and ELL teachers because we have such a shortage? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Number one, I think it's just communicating the responsibility of um, you know English learner support to the whole staff, mm -hmm. right? And including all stakeholders' roles in implementing an effective program. It really does take everyone. Right. Um, also training then, right? If it's my responsibility is no matter what my role is, then train me, right? Train all teachers, particularly in content-based instructional methods that can be used to support second language acquisition alongside the content, which includes the culturally sustaining practices we've been talking about. And involve your families and community members as partners in meeting those needs of the school community. And you can even leverage some of our refugee support organizations in the communities that may have additional language support as well. Okay, I'm going to ask one more question from a listener, mm -hmm. and then I want to wrap up with some additional follow-ups of things I'm curious to know, Carlene. But but yeah. let's let's stay on this last question for just a minute. What recommendations could be given in special education identification of ELL students? Collaborate, collaborate, collaborate. This mm. is so important that especially a special education team and the English learner team have to come together. There's been for so long a mindset of one trumps the other, and we just can't do that. Mm. Um, this cannot be a battle. We have to be able to collaborate um, not only identification practices, instruction, reclassification, all of it. Also, individual decisions and considerations is key, right? We cannot make blanket decisions or have some, there's no formula for how this really works. We have to think about the student's full scope, previous history, trauma, anything involved. Um, also, keeping it centered on understanding second language acquisition impact you know, comparatively, especially with their primary language uh, levels, and just ensuring as a baseline that we have equitable access to both the special education and language programs. Okay, I'm going to park on one of those points that you just made. And I think your first one, which is so great, collaborate, 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 looking at their individual considerations. But that third area, understanding second language acquisition impact comparatively with primary language. Talk about that a little bit more. Why is that so important? So it's really important for us to be able to parse out what is a language difference and a language disability, right? And there's a lot of great resources out there that can help in distinguishing that. It can be very hard to recognize and, and distinguish. Um, this is why we constantly are ebbing and flowing between over and under identification of dual identified students. But when we look very closely and we are able to get data in the student's primary language, it helps us to recognize whether it's a difference or a disability. Okay. Wow. 
Well, I'm going to pause there from questions from listeners. And I just want to say thank you to um, my friend who's an assistant principal in El Paso that listens frequently. And my friend who's an administrator in the Ohio area that's serving Russian speaking students, especially from Ukrainian households that have left war-torn countries. Both of those principals that I've visited with, Carlene, are doing extraordinary work serving their communities in sometimes situations that not only are difficult because school leadership is difficult, but also difficult because you're managing multiple multiple cultural expectations, sometimes families that are not together any longer, sometimes students, like for instance, in border towns who are walking across borders to find education mm-hmm. and their parents sometimes can't be accessed. So it's not easy work. So any other comments that you have specifically to leaders in those settings before I transition, because I want to talk a little bit more about your journey through education as we wrap up, but any other thoughts you want to express towards those leaders? I would say the biggest thing to continue to center on is getting to know our students and families themselves and listening to what they need and want. That's the baseline. Um, Sometimes we just rack our brains of how to support without going to the source. Mm. Go to the source. Now, as we wrap up, I have a lot of listeners in on this show who are aspiring leaders, current leaders, veteran leaders. It's really amazing to me when I have communication from folks that are listening, just how much variety there is. But there is a there's been a consistent theme of, of conversations I've been having over the spring. And that is especially, I think this is just a spring thing, which is mm-hmm. I'm looking at this next opportunity in my journey in education. Will, what are some ideas or feedback you've learned from yourself or others who are transitioning in their own leadership or their own education pathway? And you've had such a unique journey in education, Carly. So I didn't want to lose this opportunity to ask you what are some of the lessons in transition in your roles that you've learned that may be helpful for others who are considering changes in their own work? It's a great question. I think for me personally, you know, I'm not a ladder climber. I'm not title hungry. You know, um, I've always had two goals for any transitions that I've made professionally. One, my first question is, how can I grow my perspective? How will this new position or role increase my perspective? How will I learn? And then second, how will the new role increase my sphere of influence? You know, I'm think again, I'm so thankful that I've had the experiences of, you know, teaching in the classroom, having campus leadership, district leadership, regional, state leadership opportunities along the way. And each time I made those moves for those two reasons, to learn, to grow my own perspective, and to increase my sphere of influence. Um, And I would also just say, in education, I always say, if you're in education, but not in the classroom, and you don't miss the classroom, you need to get out of education. We've got to keep students and families at the forefront and the center of our minds and our work. If we don't see their faces while we're, you know, typing on a computer, doing any of the other work that we're doing, then we're not in it for the right reasons. Oh my gosh. Okay. I'm going to be really vulnerable with you, Carlene, and with listeners right now, because <laughs> this was a, this was a private moment I was having right before I got on with you that I was like, why is this happening to me? I'm sitting in my office, I'm prepping for this interview with you. And I happened across a video from a high school here in the Oklahoma area. A couple of years ago, they had done a video of 
high school seniors that all wrote letters to their favorite teachers growing up, whatever grade level. And they went back to say, thank you. And so they took a camera with them and they filmed each of these kids talking to a different teacher saying, thank you for being my favorite teacher, reading the letter to them, you know, crying and hugging. And I'm sitting in my office all alone, having this little tear fest. And I'm just, but I mean, I'm just, I'm just like falling apart at my desk and I'm thinking, what am I doing? But you know what I'm doing? I'm remembering why we do this work. Because right. when I looked at the faces of those teachers who were so touched that some kids stopped in to say, hey, remember me? You changed my life. That's what yep. it's all about. And so I, I'm going to come back to those two things that you said. It, in Principal Matters listeners, I'm speaking straight to you. Whatever you're doing right now, whether you've been able to follow in this conversation the context of second language learners within your context, or maybe that's applying to a friend of yours down the road, please pass this episode on along to them if that's the case. But I think all of us can apply these lessons in our own responsibilities and roles. One, and this is straight back from you, Carlene, how can I make sure that I'm growing in my perspective, that whatever role I'm doing is growing me, that it's keeping me, it's expanding my knowledge and understanding and growth. And two, how is this new role increasing my influence? How am I making sure that I'm touching even more lives and creating a stronger impact in the work that I'm doing? And and Carlene, you know, because we've talked off the air that I have been in the role as a teacher and a school admin, and I've worked for our state principals association, and I'm now transitioning full-time into principal matters as my full-time work. And it was actually that question that someone asked me one day when I was really wrestling, and this was six, eight months ago, really wrestling with the decision of when to make the transition or if I should make the transition into this work full time. And I had another leader who looked at me and asked that very question. If fear was not an option, Will, if money was not an option, where would you make the most impact in the lives Mm -hmm. of the leaders whom you're trying to help? And I realized right then that this work and its growing influence was an area that I needed to invest even more in. And so Principal Matters listeners, you're the beneficiaries today of having Carlene Thomas in the room. And Carlene, I want to give you a chance to, again, remind listeners, they can go back and listen to episode 345, but if they're listening to you for the first time in this part two, episode 346, how can they stay connected with you? Um, any parting words of advice and um, what, what are some ways that, that listeners can find you? Absolutely. Yeah, I would just leave you with the idea that you know, our multilingual learners, our English learners, they are rich assets in our communities. You know, whether you have just a handful or the majority of your student population, they truly matter just like every student and what benefits them uh, will benefit all of our students. I mentioned it in our last episode, good for all, necessary for some, right? It's so important that we don't let them slip through the cracks. Uh, And yeah, connect with me. I have a website, uh, carlythomas.com. That's C-A-R-L-I thomas.com. And I'm on LinkedIn under Carlene Thomas. And I have a Facebook page for my consulting, Carlene Thomas Consulting. I'm also on Twitter, Carly underscore Thomas 21, which if you listened to the first episode, it's my soccer number. Uh, And uh, yeah, so connect with me. I would love to continue the conversation. Well, Carlene Thomas, thank you so much for helping us understand equity for multilingual learners and Principal Matters listeners. Thank you so much for what you do because what you do matters. We'll talk to you again soon. You can find free resources like this one at my website at williamdparker.com. 
check out the services link on williamdparker.com to learn more about Leadership Academies, Mastermind offerings, and executive coaching. If you're planning professional development for the year ahead, or you're looking for keynote presentations from any of my books, please email me at will at williamdparker.com. Thank you for learning together today. And thanks again for doing what matters.